Okay, let's open our Bibles to first. That'll be two of you. Me and you. Oh, wow. That's hot. Good morning. Let's all open our Bibles and welcome this morning as people come wandering in. So it is uh, February 16th, 2020. It is Sunday. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 4. We've been talking about the will of God, the will of man. Um, and we're going to talk about God's direct will. We've already covered a few verses, but we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 4 and chapter 3 to begin with this morning. And going over to Colossians, Romans, and then over to the uh, Old Testament. So we're going to be in a lot of places. Let's pray. Father, uh, again, a gracious opportunity to to teach your flock, to teach uh, your word to, to them. And Father, as we spend time... Uh, many of us have heavy hearts this morning at the loss of Rick. Uh, many of us have uh, other things going on within our lives. We want to be focused on your word. We want to hear from you. We want to be uh, nourished by you, Father. Again, as we spend time in your word, uh, we want to do it to your glory and lifting your name up in this community. In Jesus' name, amen. First Peter. First Peter chapter 4. If you want to know a little quick outline of 1 Peter, period, you can. it's three words. They all begin with S. Salvation, submission, and suffering. We're going to go to the suffering part because why not? Most of you may be suffering saints this weekend because it's been Valentine's weekend. I don't know. You, you may just be okay. But, um, but this is going to be kind of an interesting understanding that we're going to deal with because it is actually God's will that you suffer. Now, if you don't suffer, don't think you're out of God's will. Because some people will inevitably find a way to try and make themselves suffer. But we're going to read verses 12 through uh, chapter 4, 12 through 19. And then we're going to go back in a few moments and look at chapter 3 real quick. But it says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree you share the sufferings of Christ, keep rejoicing. So that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of Christ rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or troublesome meddler. But if any suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed. But in the name, in that name, let him glorify God for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God, and if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, that will become what will be what will become of the godless man and the sinner. Go over to chapter three, or back to chapter three, verse thirteen. Again, the theme of this section is. Suffering, it begins here in this verse, chapter 3, verse 13. Who is to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet with gentleness and reverence and keep a good conscience, so that the thing which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for what is wrong. So again, here's what we're going to We're just going to bring a few points out of this and, and kind of move on a little bit. But first of all, uh, not all suffering is for God's will, obviously. Some suffering is deserved, and I, and I don't want to be the one to delineate that, but sometimes people do suffer. Because uh, it's sin, because it said back in chapter 4, verse, um, now I can't find it, but uh, verse 15, by no means let any of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. So obviously some suffering is deserved. Uh, and we look at that and, and we can see that through scripture. Uh, but we suffer as a witness. Part of why we suffer is to witness to others uh, so that we will not be ashamed of what we have as a believer. Second, third, secondly, thirdly, excuse me, suffering is timely. In other words, it is to refine the faith. Sometimes we suffer 
to grow in faith, to be dependent on the Lord. Sometimes we go through things to refine us. Uh, because it's, it even starts out in verse 12 of chapter 4. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal. I would say the struggles of life. Uh, not necessarily somebody throwing you in a furnace. You're not Daniel and, or I mean Daniel's friends. Um, but sometimes you will have troubles and trials in life. Fourthly, suffering is difficult, especially for an unbeliever. Right? What hope do they have? What, what, what do they have as, as an unbeliever when they do suffer? And God may be causing their suffering for them to come to the Lord, to come to Him. Uh, so, now we think of a righteous life, and I think some believers are, are, have their understanding skewed by certain things because they think everything they do will prosper and therefore everything in life will be a bed of roses. I don't believe that and never will believe that because we are in life and life has its horrible circumstances just because sin surrounds us, if you don't know that. Uh, and even in First, uh, First Corinthians, one of my favorite verses says, uh, Stop sinning! Why? Because the Corinthian church was what? A great church? I think, I think if I was to open up and say, hey, let's go through and teach through 1 Corinthians, most of you would probably say, if you're familiar enough with the Bible, uh-oh, there's something wrong with our church, because he's addressing us through 1 Corinthians. So, But uh, now many of you know, and I'm not just talking to the choir, that some days are tougher than others. So suffering is a part of the Christian life. Um, I would love to say no one will ever suffer once they become a believer, and that would, you know, make great TV, wouldn't it? Because everybody would want that. But I can't say that because if you just go through character studies of different people in the Bible, there was a lot of suffering. Life brings suffering. Uh, which is interesting because think about it. Christ died on the cross, uh, and, and the things that led up to the cross, his beatings, his illegal trials, so on and so forth, we can go through it all. How much of that was deserved? None of it was deserved until he said, you know, that he was taking upon himself our sins. But he himself didn't deserve it. We deserved it. Um, so, uh, and verse and, and verse 19 also has the idea that uh, if suffering involves committal. Uh, verse 19 of chapter 4 says, Therefore let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator. So when you're suffering, you should be leaning... On God. Now, there's three types of, of things in life I, should, I want to make you all aware of. There's dependence. The word dependence is someone who's totally dependent on someone else for whatever it might be. There's independence, which we want our kids to grow up to be a little independent. And I think most people in life waver between dependence and independence. And I think some of our issues in life is mature people that want to be dependent on someone else for their survival, for their understanding, for their life. And that's not a good place to be because usually when you talk about dependent people, they are usually immature. What we strive for is interdependence, right? That we depend on each other and we, we, we have those one another's in life and we care for one another, so on and so forth. Um, but here it calls for us to be totally dependent on God. That's the only one we are totally always to be dependent on is God. Not interdependent because God doesn't... Uh, need us to make his decisions or, or pull through different ideas so that we can, uh, that he can grow. Uh, and, and God doesn't want our independence from him. Just think about that. You know, God didn't save us and said, go your way, I'm done with you. God, God still has his hands on us and, and still caring for us. So suffering has two, basically suffering has two options. Uh, either all suffering is the judgment of God, because there's some suffering that will be part of the ju- judgment of God. I know that because I read Revelation. And there's a, there's a lot of uh, suffering and bloodshed in the book of Revelation. Or sufferings to be used for God to either mature the believer or bring the unbeliever to a place of conviction. And that's part of basic bottom line of suffering. I didn't want to make a whole s- uh, study of suffering this morning, but that's kind of giving you the idea that it is the will of God. So if you're suffering and going through something, you have to ask yourself, God, not get me out of this, or God, how can I escape this? But God, why are you doing this? How are you going to use this? What do I need to do to grow? Okay? Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And I just want to go through a few of these. 
Colossians chapter 4. And what I want to hone in here on, on verse 4, Epaphras, verse 12, I'm sorry, Epaphras, who is one of your number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings, always laboring earnestly for you in his prayers, that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. Which is interesting. When was the last time you prayed for other people to stand perfect and fully assured of the will of God? And I think that should be part of our prayer life, is we should be praying for other believers for that. Which is interesting, because it says here that he labored earnestly. Now, he just didn't pray. Let me kind of explain this to you. He prayed, well, let's, let's back up for a second. He wants you to stand perfect and be uh, certain of the will of God. How's that? Let's, do, let's use the word certain instead of this idea of fully assured. Uh, are you certain, as a believer, of the will of God? And there's certain places we waver, I understand that. But here's what he did, and I think this is more fascinating. He labored earnestly. The word in Greek is where we get our word, he agonized. Now think about that. How's your prayer life? Have you agonized over someone to grow in the idea of standing perfect or, or standing complete uh, or, or made mature? How's that? Let's do that. Let's use that because usually the word has to do with bring, being brought to an intended goal. So have you prayed for someone and agonized in prayer? Um, and this is basically for the Colossian church. So you can even say the church of Southwood. Have you agonized that they would be brought to maturity and they would be confident, certain of the will of God? Wouldn't that be a, 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 what we call a believing utopia? Isn't that a perfect place to be where everybody in, in the congregation, however big or small it might be, is, is going to maturity? Because most things are said in immature manners, right? We all have moments of immaturity. Uh, and we say things and we say, I wish I could bring that, reel that words back in. Um, but he's agonizing over it. Uh, here's the interesting thing. I want to go back to the laboring earnestly. It means to enter into a contest or to contend in, gym, in gymnastic games, so, uh, or, uh, or battle for other people, spiritual battle. Now think about this for a minute. What does it take to have that kind of agonizing for an Olympic or sporting event? What is it saying? You've got to get in shape. You've got to constantly do it. There's consistency. There's uh, continuity going on that you're doing. Uh, you're going to be engaged in a conflict because you're, you're getting in shape for what? A contest, right? A battle, or or we would call it a you know to, to win the victory. But he was doing this. He was engaged, and here's what's going to happen: when we pray earnestly for other people, okay, there's that's a spiritual warfare. Because what's going to be going against that? Well, if you pray for a congregation of a hundred people and you're going to sit down by name, each one of them are going through different things that you're not aware of. And the adversary is battling with those people, and therefore you've entered the battle with the only weapon God has given you, which is go to Him in prayer. Strive with Him in prayer. Um, bringing, here's your prayer, here's your goal in your prayer. You want to bring people to maturity. Right? Because usually people that agonize with one another or have issues with one another, I will narrow it down most of the times there, there's immaturity involved. There's things going on. And not only that, you want him to um, come to a place of abiding, which is interesting, because look at this. Go back to that word in verse 12, where it says, fully assured. Now, let me tell you this. In, in, in Greek grammar, this is uh, something that will last forever. It's not, I want you to have a, an assurity today. As you walk out the door, I pray for your assurance and understanding of God's will today. No, you're praying for their assurance of God's will today and on from this point. An abiding, continual certainty about God's will. Uh, being fully persuaded of God's will. Uh, now, here's what, what Epaphras is doing. He's, his actions in prayer should be all our actions. And, I, and the reason why is because we all want to see everyone come to a place that they're mature and certain of God's will, being fully convinced in their mind and in their actions 
of what God has for them to do and be. And mature believers uh, are a wonderful group of people to deal with because they work well with everything. They're functional. They walk around life with assurance. They're keenly aware of anything that happens in their life God has dealt with and brought with. I'm going to give you an example, and we'll go into them hopefully this morning. The greatest example of a mature believer is Joseph. His maturity began before his physical maturity came in. Think about that for a minute. He was spiritually mature before he was physically mature. And usually we kind of what? We look at people uh, with light, you know, salted and white and graying hair, and we say, those people have wisdom because they're older, they've gone through things in life. And I will say this, very few of us have Joseph's wisdom for life. Even Solomon said what? To God, he said, give me what? Wisdom. And then you look at Solomon's life and how well did he function in wisdom. Sometimes he was not very wise. Okay? Because uh, that's, the, that's the issue he's dealt with, which was sin. Joseph, there's not a place that God tells us about his, his ability. His, now, of course, he sinned because he's what? Human. Okay? But God doesn't delineate that to us. Go to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Verse 1. We're just going to read verses 1 and 2. Uh, Most of you are familiar with it, but again, we're talking in the umbrella understanding of the will of God, and it says, I urge you... And remember, Paul has taken 11 chapters of doctrine to get to this point. So he's fed you uh, a, a good meal, a good understanding for you to stand upon. He says, "I now I urge you, brethren, uh, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, or basically stop being conformed to this world, yeah, well, first one, the first verse looks at the body, right? We're talking about present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The second one starts out with do not be or stop being conformed, and this is a command. Stop being conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So what's the worldly part of you? It's your mind. Obviously, your mind will take your body to places it shouldn't go. But this is, so it's talking about body and mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and, and acceptable and perfect. So as we look at this, first of all, the believer in the will of God is to present his body. Lord, use me as an instrument wherever I go. Because my feet are going to take my body somewhere and I'm going to be somewhere. And maybe I'm brought to this incident or this place for your purpose. And I want, I want to make a difference spiritually. Okay? We could say that. Second part is a believer needs a, a change of mind. I think every believer has to understand that they've got uh, mental issues when they become a believer. I know that sounds terrible, but we do. Because we have our worldly understanding, our, our understanding of what humans, uh, how we function as a human, but we don't know what God has for us until we spend 11 chapters in the book of Romans, at least. Okay? And we understand God's plan and how it unfolds. So we need, so we need to be transformed. We need our mind, which is conformed, shaped by this world, to stop being shaped by this world. And we need to uh, be like a great caterpillar and metamorphose our minds. That's what the word transform means. To be basically changed from this worldly understanding to a godly understanding. So... And thirdly, we, we, we will then uh, understand fully what the perfect uh, and good and acceptable will of God is. So basically it starts with what? Understanding what the will of God is is not understanding what does God want me to go to college or what house he wants me to buy. It begins with a mind transformation. And I don't know, uh, one of the things you should be doing as we come to Bible study is saying, Lord, pray, I pray that my mind what? Changes. That I have a change of mind or whatever it is, because most of you, uh, like me, are pretty stuck on what you think you know and can't change your mind. But we want the Lord's word to change our mind. So I'm going to give you a couple of, uh, since we've gone through this, uh, I don't know, 11 weeks so far of will of God, I want to bring up some summaries 
and then we'll move on where I'd like to go this morning a little bit. Uh, let's talk about some basic truths to, relative to proper uh, exercise of our wills. How, how, what's the proper way to use our wills, okay, biblically? And I'm going to give you uh, two basic points. Think you can handle that? <laughs> two basic points. Uh, out of what we've talked about a little bit, too. Submission, uh, we should be able to submit, not prayerfully seek God's will. Now, understand what I'm saying. We, we, don't, we don't think, uh, we, shouldn't be, uh, we shouldn't be seeking uh, in prayer, uh, Lord, should I do this? Uh, the reason is because there's enough things in the Word of God that we should never uh, seek to do something that's against God's will. In other words, don't sin. Right? If we're sin, we're not in God's will. Uh, we should never uh, seek God in prayer about what we're thinking or what is forbidden in God's word. And we should never seek God's will in prayer for something that's already commanded. I, I don't know. Sometimes it's easy. This is what God says, do. Do it. This is what God says, don't do. Do that. Don't do that. You kind of get what I'm saying? So people often seek God for in prayer for those things that are already stated. Or they want to say, magically, I'm going to pray for God's will What's the right house for me to buy? Let's just talk about house, okay? And you stand outside the house and say to your spouse, uh, or you're buying it for yourself, and you say, uh, this is the house. I'll stand out here and pray for this. And you're looking for maybe the shingles to flash in Morse code, buy this house, buy this house. Buy this. I don't know what people are looking for. Um, obviously, there's enough things in life for you to determine um, to buy the house or not buy the house, Um and why you're buying the house. Do the pros and cons list. I think sometimes we seek God in a, in a mystical, magical way. You know. Uh, secondly, so we're not going to prayerfully seek God for things that are commanded or seek God's in prayer for what's forbidden. Secondly, what about those that are not commanded, uh, like who to marry, where to buy, how to buy a car or house or so on. Uh, now, this is going to be tough. Ready for this? I'm going to give you a great biblical insight. God leaves the majority of decisions in life up to you. What? Freedom. Yeah, you're free. You're free to make choices. Um, uh, or we can say it a different way. Let's do it this way. God's sovereignty allows for you to use your brain. Did I walk on? I, yeah, I'm walking on eggshells when I say, use your brain. There's enough things to determine. Um, what needs to be understood on various issues? I think a lot of people, younger people today, get themselves in debt because that that Audi or that Mercedes looks really good. When a let's see, do you have a? Anybody remember this? I'm going to say this: a Pinto mindset. Nobody wants to buy a Pinto. They want to go right up to the Mercedes, just like kids going to a job today, and they don't want to make ten bucks an hour and work their way up the chain. They said, "No, no, no. I I got an education. I graded I graduated, you know, 78th in my class of 70, 77, and I should I deserve this job." And you go, "What?" Because most of us probably were taught. I'm looking at a crowd. Work your way up the ladder, right? Get get up the ladder. But the kids want to start at the top of the ladder, and they're incapable because that's the mindset today. Um, use your brain. I, I know that sounds terrible in church, right? I want to feel something. Well, you, if you use your brain, you'll feel something at some point. What about what about areas outside of what God commanded and what God's forbidden? Let's talk about that. Let's let's kind of use our what is it our decider and try and look how we're going to make some decisions. First of all, I would say this: thoroughly investigate all pros and cons. I'm one of those knuckleheads. If I'm doing something that's kind of a an int- uh, something important in my life, I'm going to write a pros and cons list. Anybody ever done that? Yeah, and, and sometimes you have a thousand more cons and pros, or vice versa. But write the list. To, it gives you time to use your brain. Okay. Secondly, listen. This is so important. What of what of these options? What of these options gives us the best opportunity to glorify God? What puts us in the best place? And it's hard in today's stage, and I know some people are watching in YouTube, but sometimes our jobs transfer us in places there's not a good Bible church. And you're going to compromise certain things, and you can't say, well, I don't ever want to go to church again. I'll stay at home and be a pajama Christian. That's not necessarily good unless you're older and can't. You know, but some of us are young and functional. I think we're in a generation today that loves YouTube Christianity. You know, um, But that's not 
biblical. You know that, right? The Bible says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. So one of the things we want to look at is an opportunity. Does this church, does this uh, area, does this city, does this state give me an opportunity to glorify God? Period. Now, if your job has transferred you somewhere, now you've got to work on a different basis, right? You may have to compromise in certain areas because guess what? The only perfect church in America is the one you're not in. Right? Because you want to go to that church and you say, that's a really good church. You go to that church. And now it becomes less perfect because now you're going to know all its what? Shortcomings, right? Well, we'll know it all. It'll show its... Somebody once walked in here and said, I can't go to church here because blue seats. I'm glad that's your decider. But that just showed me something and I'm going to be as nice as I can. They were very spiritually immature. Blue seats? That, that ruins you from worship? Really? Uh... Okay, we're good. Move on. Thirdly, what option surrounds me to keep my spiritual priorities the best? Where can I do... You have a list. Remember, everything's a list. And this is what we're talking about. And you have spiritual priorities. Does this environment, how I'm doing things, keep my priority list a priority? You know, some people say, my number one priority is to uh, love my wife. I go, that should never be your number one. Your number one is to love the Lord with all your heart and soul and mind, right? Number one. So after that, number two should be, okay, family. It should be in there. Wife or husband next, okay? Um, You've got to find every opportunity, again, to keep those spiritual priorities because that's what the Bible says, you know? Fourthly, here's what I'm doing, uh, Lord, close doors. You can say, Lord, in your prayers, can you close doors or open doors? There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, if you remember Paul's Macedonian vision, he said, I'm going to go this way and start it out. And what happened? The Lord closed doors. You know? This is not the first church I ever candidated in. Did you know that? There's another church I candidated in about a, uh, well, I put in my, my, uh, submitted my resume, and we had a lot of talks, and, and after I thought about it, I just couldn't do it. It was too far away. I had a transfer job. I was not in the right time in my life. And, um, they got the pastor that was meant for them. And I think it's a blessing. And I probably would have been more frozen than I am here. So, and then, then I'll get an email. I don't know if you know this, but every once in a while I'm on an email with pastors, and they email me things that this church is looking for a pastor. Are you interested? I, and I automatically say, never. I don't care. I know where I'm supposed to be. Especially the last, one of the last ones was for Alaska. I said, nope, nope, we're ready. We're done. I don't even think Alaska knows what a baseball is. They know what a, what a dog sled is, but that's about it. I'm, I'm not going to Alaska. Uh, nor have I ever thought about going to Alaska except on vacation. That was nice. Fifth point of, of helping us discern uh, areas outside of what God's commanded or what's forbidden. A wrong choice is not necessarily a sinful choice. Let me say that again. If you make a, a wrong choice, it's not sinful. Uh, you are not omnipotent or omniscient. You're not God. You're going to make decisions in your life and you're going to say, that was stupid. Did you learn something? And that's what you should be doing. You should learn something because if you make a decision, a perfect decision every time, please see me afterward. I want to know what stock you're looking at. Think about it for a minute. Nobody's perfect on understanding everything. And sometimes when we do the pros and cons, we miss a variable and something may happen. Um, But allow yourself to make mistakes. Don't beat yourself up over it. Um, I, I would say there's an issue if you keep making the same mistake over and over again, um, and then you may have a spiritual issue more than anything else going on. Sixthly, God allows us to make bad choices, sometimes just to teach others what you've learned, and said, listen, I, made, I, I took that step, please don't do that. Here's what happened to me, uh, but the Lord brought me out of it, and I've gotten comfort from different things, but please don't do the same thing I've done. You know, uh, I once had a friend... His son was turning, I think, 15 or 16 at the time. He says, I'm not going to tell him. I'm going to let him make his own mistakes so he'll learn from it. Because I had made mistakes and I learned from them. And I, and I looked at him I go, so you're adding stupidity to stupidity? You made mistakes. Go tell your son, don't do that. Don't ever do that because it's wrong. I've done it. Stop. Just as easy as that. Uh, and I think sometimes we, we're afraid to do that. Um, we're afraid to make cho- choices even for our children sometimes. They're not, most children, and I'm saying under 30, no. 
there's there's an age where you know a child can start making decisions. Um, I don't know how many times I wish I could do a character study of parents in grocery stores. Because they make some of the most awful decisions because little Johnny's screaming and little Johnny wants cookies or little Johnny wants this and that. And they got to put it. And then they open up the animal crackers so little Johnny will be quiet. So he's eating animal crackers. So every time he comes to the store, he's going to do what? He's going to scream for animal crackers and you're going to get him animal crackers. And now who's in charge? Little Johnny. Little Johnny's in charge. And he gets his animal crackers every time he blurts out. And I would say, take little Johnny outside and say, know what you're getting if you scream? Teach him a different route that's going on. Take him to the store and say, here's some self-control, little Johnny. You're not getting your crackers until we leave or after dinner tonight. Learn some self-control. Because I think one of the number one things I recognize in life is people don't know self-control. And that's just life of observation. Then on the other side, teach a child to do something we have problems with sometimes is accept responsibilities for your choices, whether good or bad. You did it. Accept responsibility. And I think that's that's a, an awesome thing to do. And, and, and please try and skip any idea of rationalizing things. Well, I did this because. You don't know what's going on. Uh, people rationalize things in life today. Uh, I think it's more. I think it's becoming more of a norm than it should be, where where people will say, "You don't know what my parents were like. You don't know what my home life was like. You don't know where I grew up." So they're blaming their actions. Let's do it this way: they're blaming their actions on environment and family instead of taking responsibility. For and and I think uh, when you when you really see people that take responsibility and say, "No, it's not." Listen, I had a friend of mine who grew up in the ghetto. And he ended up going in the military and the post office for years. And I'll never forget what he said to me. He goes, I grew up in the ghetto, but the ghetto's not in me. And I grew out of the ghetto. And if my friends from the ghetto want to talk to me, they got to come to me. I'm out of that. So he never blamed his life for being growing up in the ghetto, but he said he knew he could get out of it and no longer be a part of it. And you can do that. Uh, whatever you got in your life. Uh, so when we talk about things that God leaves us to choice, it's, it's hard for us to grasp that. Think about that for a minute. God just says, make a choice. Now, I'm going to say this, looking at you guys this morning. I would venture to say most of you make hundreds of decisions a week and don't realize it, and then, you'll, then somebody will turn Calvinist and say, I have no free will and I can't make a decision about the biggest thing in my life, and that's my eternal salvation. I can't do it. But I can, I can decide if I want a Whopper or a Big Mac. And that's like, that's the killer anyway, but uh, but you can decide those things. We make decisions all the time because God has given us a brain, okay? And sometimes your decisions are bad. I'm, I'm very time-oriented lately, and I've been thinking, I really want to get a burger at this place. This place that I like here in Tulsa, I really want to go get a burger. But it's about, a, about an hour and 20-minute round trip for a hamburger. You know, I haven't done it because my decider says I don't have an hour and 20 to just leave, to just use up like that. I can't do it right now. But I've been thinking, man, that burger's really good. But i got to still constantly make a decision because it's hammering me. I need that burger. Now, now if somebody's got an hour and 20 minutes, maybe you can make a burger run, bring it back, but I can't do it. Okay? Um, but, but God does that. Uh, he leaves the decisions to us. Because uh, that's how God set up certain things and, and set up things. Uh, uh, because I would say this, if God was really, if God, let's do it this way. And I could do this today, so th- this is my little leeway. If God says you have no ability to freely choose, you have no free will, okay? I'm going to say this, to, especially to the married couples here this morning. Um, and marriage is supposed to be forever, my Bible says marriage, and I know marriages aren't always perfect and it happens, things happen. We'll talk about that in second class, not the first class. But I would say this, if God really said you had no ability to freely choose, God would give us the exact soulmate he wants for us, and we would never have a perfect marriage forever and be married forever, because that's what God's ideal is, right? Yes or no? Okay. I don't know any of you, now, now many of you have this, I know it's been Valentine's weekend, and said, She's my, he or she's my soulmate. And that, that may be true. That may be true. I have no problem with that. But you chose each other. God didn't bring her in, a, in an envelope sealed, here, this is for you. The only one he did that for was who? 
Adam and Eve. And right off the bat, they had troubles. <laughs> I mean, just think about it. It was her fault. It was her fault. It was her fault. God, it was the woman. Listen, God, it was the woman you gave me. My soulmate. The only one to choose from. There's no one else here but me and Eve. But God, it's your fault, basically. Because you gave me Eve. Now, God said, well, I've tried that once. From now on, you're on your own. Pick your own. Then you can blame yourself. But basically, think about those things. Um, many people think God sends memos. You know, like God says, uh, I have a doubt what's going on, so God, please leave a memo on my desk. Do this. This is right. Um, and, and I would say this. Why does God, let's, let's start with this question to lead into where I want to go. Why does God leave so much up to us to make decisions? Why does he do that? Because to me, it's, a, it's partially irritating, but as I looked into this and studied this, I said, oh, that's kind of interesting. First of all, I, we're not going to do it this morning, but if you read Proverbs 8, God's desire is for us to be wise. And what I mean by wise is lead life skillfully. Lead life skillfully. Now, I'm a horrible carpenter. I do certain things pretty decent, but you know the old adage in carpentry is what? Measure twice, cut once, right? I can measure 47 times, and somehow that cut will be off a quarter of an inch. It'll, it'll inevitably, or the angle will be wrong. Just a, I don't care what I do, but I'm going to tell you something. God also made caulk. So you can be off and caulk it. Okay? But what I'm saying is, God, skillful idea, listen, the reason I brought skillful, because that's what skillful is about. Wisdom is being able to do things in a skillful, perfect manner in life, and God wants us to do that, and that comes through making decisions. That comes through making decisions. Secondly, God loves when we make intelligent choices, and they work out for his godly glory. God loves intelligent choices. And if you haven't, uh, looking around the room, some of you as you've gotten older, if you haven't made a lot of intelligent choices, you've got to work on a few things. I'll say, well, number one, you've got to work on sin and faith in your life. They go hand in hand. If you're living a life of sin, you can't live a life of faith. They, wo- they work hand in hand, right? If you've got other issues going on that you can't make choices, or you may uh, be getting a little older like me and forgot what choice I made, uh, you've got to deal with all these things. Thirdly, choices uses our mind. Listen, choice uses our minds, and God's the designer of the mind. So when you're using your mind, you're using God's perfect design for you. You know? I, I, I said something to Lizzie, I think it was this morning, and I said, that was a clever joke. She goes, well, I just got it. I go, well, yeah, because my level of clever is sometimes not in the room, you know, because I thought it was funny. You should think it's funny. And, and, she, and, she, and she, you know, oh, I got it, okay? Because you got to do what? You got to match these things. Uh, so sometimes I'm out of my mind, and so are you. <laughs> uh, fourthly, our power to choose in so many areas shows the sovereignty of God because nothing we can do in our choices can shake the kingdom of God. So when we make choices, and all of us use our choosers in this room, and Outside the uh, Tulsa area, all uses their mind to make choices. These may bang up against each other. And God is totally sovereign, so much so that nothing shakes his kingdom. Fifthly, it involves an opportunity to demonstrate life choices by showing how valuable your doctrinal content is. When we talk about faith, we also talk about how much of the Word of God is in you that you apply to life. And making decisions shows how much of the Word of God is controlling you. And we could do that with any decision we make. Um, a couple of, what, two years ago? I decided to stop having sodas. Was it a health reason? No, nah, not necessarily. I just said I'm not drinking them anymore. Especially when I know that I've used soda to clean the battery acid off my battery. So I said, I'm just, I'm just not, I, I'm not, I don't know if I'm any healthier or look any healthier, but I stopped drinking sodas. But boy, I'll tell you something. Every once in a while, I want to have a soda. Okay? Um, but this, this, what's the doctrinal content behind that? I mean, is there a verse that says, get a soda, don't get a soda? No. 
No, but for me, I made a choice. So I go to the Lord and I said, Lord, when I deal with this, is this something I should choose or is there something, is there a better alternative? And he says, well, I made plenty of water. Most of the earth is water. It's a good alternative. And I thought, I think about that and I go, okay, we'll stick with water. Boring, but we stick with water. Is that spiritually uh, significant or not? No. It's just what I've chosen to do. But I look to the Word of God sometimes to say, I don't really need to. Then I'll have a little you know, soda and I'll go, ooh. Why am I having that? It tastes like pure what? Sugar. You know? But that's not spiritual. But we can plug in our spiritual understanding to many decisions. Uh, we, can, we can use freely God's Word. Listen, this is an, like an open book life exam. We can use God's Word to aid us in any decision we have. Just don't pick and choose a verse and say, go thou doest. You know, don't do that. But look through God's word and say, is this, and remember, that we're not talking about what God's commanded or what God's forbidden, so those are already off the books. You can't do those. You, you can't say, you know, I, I've met this woman, I don't like my wife any longer, and it's a really good idea that I start dating her and drop my wife. And you say, is that forbidden? Or, you know, and you know already that's an issue. Stop that. Okay? Uh, that's a bad life choice. Uh, but if you look at Scripture, which is fascinating, there's many examples in Scripture of those who were guided and not guided by God's Word. And we're going to talk about two of those, maybe starting this morning. I'll see how time goes, but I'll give you them ahead of time. You can look. Esau. Esau. What mattered to Esau the most? His stomach. Listen, I would love to write a book called The Red Stuff. Because that's all that got Esau over the top was red stuff. Now, I don't know if it was chili. I don't know what it was. It was some kind of stew. But it was red stuff. He called it red stuff. And he was known as red the rest of his life. Okay? And Joseph. Joseph, his entire life, he knew God was guiding it. Esau's entire life, he didn't even care about God guiding it. He cared about red stuff. Okay? And I will say this, lastly, that, that deals with this. Right decisions or right choices leads us to maturity. First of all, listen to this. You, most of you in this room, prayerfully, I don't know everybody personally, but I'm going to say everybody in this room is a believer. You've made a right choice to start with. You've believed the gospel, right? Now, we can get into all the theological ramifications of that, but we've all believed the gospel at some point. Uh, you're all here this morning. And you made the right choice because you want to be taught the Word of God. That's a good, pretty good choice to me, right? I, I like having you here. I love teaching you, and that's good. We're teaching the Word of God here. Uh, then you guys say, where else have I made right choices? What other areas in life have I made God, good choices that have come off these? And you can, you can develop a pattern, listen to me, this is so important, of bad choices or good choices. But you can... Go to the place you start making good choices because here's what you do. You recognize you made bad choices and you didn't go to the first two. Well, you may not be saved. Get that squared away. If you are saved, you got to spend time in the God's Word and let God's Word control your thinking pattern because God's Word will because I'm still open to Romans chapter 12. Let your mind be transformed by the renewing of, of what? Through the Word, right? you got to transform your mind. Renew your mind. And lastly... Uh, this will give you a proper self-image of yourself. In other words, not saying, wow, look how great I am, but you'll understand who you are in Christ and who you are without Christ. And I think that's important. Uh, so let's, let me do, let's just start this real quick. Uh, we've got a few minutes. I want to do, do some implications of, 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 uh, that come from choosing, freely choosing right, having right choices. What implications come out of that? First of all... Uh, Carries with it responsibility. Freedom to choose carries with it responsibility. You make the choice, you gotta pay the consequences. Bless you. See, there's truth right there. Um, we're not gonna turn to it, but let's talk about Esau for a minute. Esau made a choice, and God held him in Genesis 25. God held him responsible for his choice of choosing stew over the birthright. And the birthright carried with it family responsibility and spiritual responsibilities that Esau said, I'm not doing. I'd rather have, I'm hungry, I'm starved. Now, um, many of us have used that terminology over the years that I'm starved. And you're not starved. You're what? You're hungry. Okay? Uh, but Esau, uh, which is interesting because later, 
uh, after Esau, God will during when Israel's in the, in the wilderness wanderings in Deuteronomy 21 will make the selling of birthright illegal. Now you say, well, Esau didn't know that law. So God made up this, this, the law in uh, retrospect to what Esau did. And that's just wrong thinking because God has always set that up. And, and Esau knew he was wrong, but he didn't care. And if you read the, if you read the narrative on Esau, you'll know that, and go back to Hebrews where he says this guy was just an issue. He problem, this, uh, this guy was basic mindset was this. I will die without food. Now, if you know the human uh, physiology, you don't die without food for an ex- unless it's an extended period of time. But uh, Esau thought it was necessary. To th- and, and I don't know if you realize this, but kind of Jacob stoked the furnace a little bit. He made something pretty... You probably smell... Are you ever walk in that house and what's that? Wow, that smells really good. And now all of a sudden your hunger gets, you know, gets amped up a little bit. Um, but still, it shouldn't be controlling, right? Not in this instance. Uh, we must all be responsible for our reactions and for our, uh, because our reactions cannot be planned. Think of this. Our actions can be planned. Reactions can't be planned. So when you react to something uh, or overreact or underreact, that's, that's to the situation. And, and if you overreact, for instance, guess what's in charge? The circumstances in charge. Well, let's just do this. Now I'm thinking about Go to Hebrews chapter 12. Real quick. we got about seven minutes. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. And we'll cover a couple points and we'll probably pick up with Joseph next week. We'll see. I think Joseph would deserve a whole, whole lesson a little bit. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 16. Well, let's pick up in verse 15. See, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it may, many be defiled, that there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, that's, this is the commentary, whoever wrote Hebrews, on that incident way back in Genesis chapter 25. Okay? And it says, He is... The most immoral and godless person was Esau, because why? And it gives the reason. He sold his birthright for a single meal. For Verse 17, for you know that even afterwards, that means after the selling of the birthright for one meal afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it with tears. In other words, he sought his birthright. He was crying over but he never came to the Lord and said, Lord, I changed my mind about what I did and how wrong it was. He just, he just wanted the birthright back. You see the hardness that was developed because of one really bad decision that now defined his character? Esau would be defined the rest of his life by this one mistake. And we can find many in Scripture that have made many mistakes and are not defined by the mistakes. How about David? David makes some mistakes. What's David defined by? Uh, he's a hard after, his heart was a heart after God's, right? That was it. That's what he was defined by. And other kings were defined that they did, did what David had done. And you look at David's life and say, well, I don't know. David's kind of had some issues. And most of us will go to one or two instances. But David had a lot of issues. Uh, on Father's Day sermon I gave, I don't know, about 25 years ago, I gave a sermon on David being the most horrible father in the Bible. Because just think about it. Would you send David a Father's Day card? You know, I mean, these are the kind of things that we overlook sometimes. Um, not only not only would, would implications come from right to fr- freely choose that we need responsibility. Secondly, uh, we are not mature in any way until we accept that responsibility for maturity, for, for ch- making choices. In other words, I make a response. Adam, let's go back to Adam. Was Adam responsible for his bad choice? Maturity, now we don't know how old Adam was when God created him. I'm going to say 30, because that's a good age. But it doesn't matter. But the first thing Adam did is he did not say, Yes, Lord, I did it. Forgive me. He said what? She did it. 
And until we learn to take responsibilities, uh, and, and, well, Eve didn't take responsibility either, really, right? So, I mean, you look at both of those. Uh, I think excuses for behavior is annoying. Take responsibility for behavior. Change what needs to be changed. Deal with what needs to be dealt with. Deal with the sin that needs to be dealt with. You know, I, I, don't, I didn't find Philip Wilson that funny, but it always radiates in my mind what he said. The devil made me do it. That was one of his character things. The devil made me do it. Well, because why? We always want to blame somebody like Eve did. The devil made her do it. Um, which is funny because God said, you did eat. <laughs> Saying, own up to it. Uh, and, and notice the consequences that came out of it. The first consequence was the birth of self-consciousness. They knew they were naked. And then people will go off the crazy end with some different theologies, like it's horrible, nakedness is horrible and sinful. No, no, they just recognized who they were. Until then, listen, until that moment, you know who they, what they recognized? Who God was. Who God was. They took of the fruit, they no longer saw who God was, they recognized who they were. You get that? And that's, a, that's just a dangerous place to be. Because uh, God created them, Without clothes. I don't know if God was a designer. I don't know if he was Michael Kors or whoever you want to buy clothes. God didn't care. God created them without clothes. Um, and it, and it basically it says in Genesis 3, 7, they knew that they were naked, yet they were naked a few minutes before the fall. So you see the, the difference that came is this, this uh, they became conscious or self-conscious of that. Uh, but notice what dropped. They became self-conscious of themselves and obedience to him stopped. Kind of get the picture? Okay. And, and, and I'll tell you the, from this real quick, three signs of death. Shame and guilt and loss of desire for God. Listen to this real quick. Three signs of death, and I will say this, three signs of also living in sin. We could do either one. Okay. It's shame and guilt, because what? Shame, they put on clothes. Guilt, they hid themselves from God. So if uh, physically, they hid themselves from God, and psychologically, they couldn't look Him in the eye. So they, they hid from God. And thirdly, they lost a desire for God. They didn't seek God. God had to do what? God had to say one of the funniest lines in the Bible to me. God says to Adam, where are you? Like, what are we playing? Holy, holy hide and seek? God knew where He was. He wanted Adam to say, Lord, here am I. Because he had, and, and that shows what happened. Their relationship had separated because Adam had gone out of, uh, wanted to go out of God's purview. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time. Again, a time that is for you, for us to spend time now to re- reflect on what was taught, a time to understand to, uh, to maturity is a good, a good decision-making process to follow your word. Wherever it says these are the things you want us to do, and the, the things that are forbidden to also uh, make that part of our mainframe. We said these are the things to start off with. These are the things I should do and the things I shouldn't do. And then make good uh, godly decisions as we walk through life. In Jesus' name, amen.